You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn to God's words. Um, we're going to look at some verses in Philippians chapter 1. I want to read from uh, verse 1 of that chapter, and we're going to look from verses 9 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. It's a new year, new start, better life. That's, everyone kind of hopes for a better life. Uh, I got a book on the the clearances and many people from the Highlands left to go to the United States heading for a better life. Most of the refugees coming from Syria to Europe have come for a better life. I think many of us think, well, how could I have a better life in 2016? And some may say, well, if I change church, I'll have a better life. Some may say, uh, if, I get a, if I move city, if I get a, a better job, if I change my friends, some will even go so far as to say, maybe I'll just get rid of um, my partner and husband or wife or whatever and start again and have a better life. I think all of us want a a better life. If we were asked, do you want a better life? We're going to say yes. And that is what our passage is about today. It may not seem like that, but it is. It's about a better life for us and a better life for St. Peter's. Let me say this, by the way. Better, not best. Um, It is incredibly sad when somebody dies. But if they die in the Lord, they are better. They have got a better life. And, um, you know, when you see somebody suffering, and when you see the pain and the sorrow in their life, and they die and they're a Christian, the words that there is no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, it's a better life. That's our best life. That's our best life yet to come. But whilst we're still here on this earth, how can we have a better life? This is my Joel Osteen sermon, your best life now sermon. Now, if you don't know who Joel Osteen is, don't bother Okay, that's all I would say. Um, But he's probably the number most popular preacher in the U.S. Um, 
We rejoice when we preach to a couple of hundred people. He preaches to about 30 or 40,000, and Oprah loves him. And again, if you don't know who Oprah is, be thankful. Uh, but, you know, he's, he's, he's very influential. And his most important book, I think, is one uh, that's called Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential. And I've read it, and there's some nice wee bits in it, and there's things, bits that you could stick up on your wall. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to disparage all of it except simply to say to this, that in its very essence, at its very heart, it misses the heart of the gospel. And that's the saddest thing about it all. I mean, he says things like, for example, don't just accept whatever comes your way in life. You were born to win. You were born for greatness. You were created to be a champion in life. I'm sorry, you weren't born to win. You weren't born to be a champion in life. Um, he quotes the story of a boy who uh, is, goes, I am the best hitter in the world at baseball. I am the best hitter in the world. And he, um, uh, the boy, the ball's thrown at him. He misses it. He goes, I am the number one hitter in the world. The ball is thrown at him and he misses it. I am the number one hitter in the world. Same thing happens. He then goes, I'm the number one bowler in the world or the number one pitcher in the world. And Austin says, that's the attitude you've got to have. No, it's not. It's not the attitude you've got to have. Simply the best is an arrogant song by a certain football team that gets played. Uh, No, we're not simply the best. And Christians shouldn't have the kind of attitude, I'm going to be the best, the best. That's the wrong way of looking at things. To live your best life now, you must start looking at life through eyes of faith, seeing yourself rising to new levels. Sounds good. See your business taking off. See your marriage restored. See your family prospering. See your dreams coming to pass. You must conceive it and believe it is possible if you ever hope to experience it. This is not Christianity. What does that say to people who are poor? What does it say to people who are sick? What does it say to people whose marriages are failing? Oh, you just didn't wish for it enough. You just didn't want it enough. It's rubbish. And it's harmful and detrimental. So I'm not going to give you seven steps. I'm going to give you one step to a better life. And it's here in uh, Philippians chapter 1. And the step is simple. Let your love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now let's consider what that means. This is God's word. And the word not only informs us, it changes us. It's God's at work within us. So we should not quench the spirit by resisting the word of God. I came across this uh, wonderful analogy a number of years ago that I think I've used a couple of times, but I like it a lot, from a man called Richard Halverson. Um, And he talks about crushing marbles. When you crush marbles, and it's very difficult to crush marbles, But when you crush marbles, if you're able to do so, what you get is fragmentation, disintegration, and sharp, hard pieces. On the other hand, if you crush grapes, what do you get? You get fragrant, refreshing wine. And he says, some people relate like marbles. They protect themselves. They want low risk. They relate by bumping around. In brittle lovelessness, they shatter when crushed, and they hurt others. Some people relate like grapes. They yield to pressure. They give love knowing that to do so makes them vulnerable. 
When crushed, they become a fragrant, redemptive blessing. The Philippians were being crushed. Paul was being crushed. He was in prison. But there was not a sourness and a bitterness. There was love shown in their relationships and a deep sense of commitment to one another. And Paul's prayer here is for their best life now. But it's very different from Osteen's vision of it. The best that we can be. This is God's program for growth. This is Paul's prayer for growth. Now in verse 6, he says that he's confident that he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And thank the Lord for that verse. Because we can be confident that having begun to follow Jesus, Jesus will continue to work in us. But that doesn't relate to a kind of hyper-Calvinism which might say, well, if God's going to work, he's going to work. I don't need to do anything. We have not been removed from all responsibility. There is a seed within us, and we need to follow through the process that sees that seed come to a full harvest. So, the first thing is simply this, that quality love abounds in knowledge and insight. Your love may abound more and more in knowledge and insight. And instinctively, there's something in that that the modern mind reacts against. Why? Because you say you've got to love people. And it's got nothing to do with knowledge. But actually, it's got everything to do with knowledge. So let's just look at this. The problem in Philippi was that there were niggles that were beginning to creep in. You'll find that there's an argument between two women, Yodia and Syntyche, later on. And Paul is aware of that in prison. And he's aware of the harm that that can do. It's like in the church here. If there is any bitterness within you, any grudges that you hold against other people, don't think that you can just bury that and everything will be fine. It will come to the surface. So it's essential that they, like we have to, would grow in love, respond to Christ in a way that helps us deal with potentially difficult situations and people. In fact, it's in the difficult situations that Christian love is really tested. Christian love is not tested when everything is going well. The love here, your love may abound more and more. It could be the love of God, but I think especially given the context, it's the love that we have for one another. It's real love. It's real quality. It's not shallow. It's not superficial. It's agape. It is deep love. It is the love of Jesus Christ. God can testify, he says in verse 8, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I love you so much, it's like Jesus loving you. The quality of my love for you is like Jesus loving you. Just a, a simple New Year's challenge. How much do you love your fellow believers, your brothers and sisters. How difficult it is sometimes to do that. Real love doesn't say, what can I get out of this? Real love says, what can others get? It's an overflowing love. It's like a waterfall. It cannot be boxed or contained. It's lavish. It's generous. It's unrestrained. Real love that puts others before ourselves is so hard and unnatural that we instinctively ask, what are the limits? That's when Jesus answered the the question of, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And man said, "Well, well, who's my neighbor? And that's why Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Paul's prayer is that they would learn how to love more and more, reaching more and more people. 
First Thessalonians 3.12, make your, may your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. I don't think you can ever say, I've reached the end, I've loved enough, I've got enough love. Chrysostom says this, heat makes all things expand and the warmth of love will always expand a person's heart. You know what it's like. There are people whose hearts, I hope you're not one of them, but we can easily become, I can become this as much as anybody, whose hearts shrivel in the cold. Whereas there are other people whose hearts, they love, and as they love, their hearts expand. And there's more and more and more. And it's just quite an astonishing thing to even be part of that, to realize, wait a minute, I didn't even used to like these people. Now I actually love them. And you're quite shocked at yourself, but it's not you. It's God working within. Some of us might question whether we have this love at all, and it's a good question. But if we are Christians, then the seed of the love of Christ is in our hearts. It just needs to be watered and to grow. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. In any, This is the glory of Christianity, by the way. In any other system of ethics, the religious teacher or the philosophical teacher calls you to be what you are not. In Christianity, you're called to be what you are. You are not this. When you're behaving in a way which is disgraceful and when in a way which is hard and cold, the Lord says, but that's not what you are. You're not this. You are my people. We have a new nature. But that nature needs to be expressed, and we are not to be satisfied with the low quality of our relationships. We need to see the love of God that's been placed in our hearts coming out. I think, by the way, that if you are here and you're not yet a Christian, that's the most important thing. Please do not take from the message this morning the notion, I just have to go out and be really nice to more people and love more people and be kind to more people. That's not going to save you. The question you have to ask is, is the love of God in your heart? And if it's not, how can it be? But if we are Christians, then we need to see that love develop. Some people say that all you need is love, but that's not true because what Paul says here is that there's kind of like twin stakes, two stakes, that knowledge and insight that help the love as it grows, if you like, the green shoots grow up. Real love needs vision. It's not blind. Real love has content and meaning. Mind and heart go together, the mind informing the heart. By the way, that's why you'll hear me often quote here someone like John Flavel, a Puritan, and people think, what, what are you quoting the Puritans for? And I'll tell you here why I'm quoting the Puritans. Because a lot of Reformed people I read today, they've got all the mind and the intellect but they don't have the warmth. And then a lot of charismatic people I meet, they've got all the warmth and they don't have much of the mind. And it doesn't, it's not a good combination. Or rather, it would be if they got together. Well, what I read in the Puritans is I read a real commitment to Christ and knowing his word and understanding and theology and so on. But there's a warmth. I've never read a single Puritan yet who doesn't have a spiritual warmth. So how can we have this knowledge about God and be so cold? I don't understand that. It doesn't make sense, biblically, theologically, or in any way. But we do need knowledge. We need an informed love, an intelligent love, 
Knowledge without love leads to pride and a dry, cold aridness where even the knowledge will dry up. Love without knowledge is like a destructive fire, burning with passion but nowhere to go, and perhaps even ending up as hatred and self-destruction. Knowledge used here is a term that carries the idea of being precise and correct. It's used in the New Testament of knowledge of things, the things of God, used 20 times and only of the things of God. A better knowledge of God and his ways promotes greater harmony within the fellowship. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you, says Paul to the Colossians, and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every work, growing in the knowledge of God. What will absolutely kill the church in Scotland is either the coldly arid legalism or the fire and passion without any knowledge because it will become incredibly self-focused and self-centered and not coming near the Lord at all. My purpose is that they may be, Colossians 2.2, that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. We grow in proportion to our knowledge If we do not know the Lord, how can we love him? To know him is to love him. Truth is an essential ingredient in Christian experience. Ignorant stunts growth. And so for those of you who say, well, I just have love. I love Jesus and I love people, but I'm not interested in knowledge. I'm saying to you, you're foolish or you're lying. Because if you have love, you will want to know. You will want to know God. You will want to find out. You will long to know more about Jesus Christ. The word that Paul uses for knowledge here actually means added knowledge, kind of super knowledge, kind of like a PhD in God. And maybe that's not the best illustration uh, because sometimes there are people who've got PhDs who don't really know very much. Uh, But you understand what I'm trying to say. He's saying there's this great knowledge that you can have. It's a developed knowledge of the truth that has practical consequences. But he's not finished there because he says it needs insight. Not just what does the Bible teach or what do we know about God, but how does this apply to daily life? You don't just need the Ten Commandments. You need to know how they apply. You don't just need the epistles. You need to know how it applies. You need to be able to take the word and to apply it today. And that's what Paul describes here as insight. And he uses a word from which we get the term aesthetics, which is the application of what is beautiful, perception by sense and intellect. Now, how can I, one one illustration of this. I love books. How do you know that? Because by the way I handle them. There is a a society called the Folio Society, and it's just brilliant because they give you these books in leather-bound books. I just absolutely love them. Listen, I love books. These folio books are not going in the bath with me. They're certainly not going in the shower. They're not being thrown all over the place. How you handle something indicates what you think about it. There is a, uh, you can tell a person in that sense who loves people by the way that they handle people. 
It's not enough to say, I love people because I know it's right to love people and I heard it in church, I should love people and Jesus says I should love people so I obey Jesus and I love people. And then you see how they handle people. You go, no you don't. You can't stand people. You know, as you get these uh, people who go, I love people, I love the world, feed the world, I love the world. And they can't even talk to their neighbor. The person sitting beside them in church, they just can't stand They want to get out of there as quick as possible. I'm sorry, you don't love people. You don't love the world. We need insight. We need moral discernment about what is right and wrong. We need to appreciate what God has given us, his word, his people, his creation, so that we filter out what is harmful and polluting. It's a perceptive love, and it brings a much greater unity. It's not that knowledge brings disunity, it's that knowledge actually brings a greater unity. That goes on to then knowledge and insight lead to the best, a pure life. Uh, Look at what verse 10 says, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The seed of love grows through the holders of knowledge and insight. This produces blossoms, if you like, of discernment and holiness the purity of the inner person, the blamelessness of the outer life. To discern, to recognize as genuine after examination, to approve and to deem worthy. It's a bit like, um, it's a word that was used of checking for fake coins. How do you know what's best? How do you know what's right? How do you know what God wants? How do you know what real Christians are? Well, you grow in the love, knowledge and depth of insight. Then you can discern what is best. It's finding out what pleases the Lord. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Find out what pleases the Lord. See, we live in a generation where so many Christians want a shortcut. How do I know what God wants? Oh Lord, just give me a word. Give me a prophecy. Come down and tell me directly what I should do. And I will always do it. And God says, ah, not normally how God works. He can and has done. But normally what he does is he fills us with his love. And then we are able to discern. We're given wisdom. In that sense, we're treated like grown-ups. Not like idiots. Not like robots. Lord, program me. No. God says, I want you to freely love me and I want you to hear what I'm saying to you in my word and I want you to apply it in the context and the situation in which you are in. It's recognizing what pleases the Lord, what's better. Now I think there's a great danger here and the danger is this, that we do not accept that there can be a better life because we are become like children of our age reflecting its values and attitudes. We become content with spiritual knowledge if it doesn't make too much difference to our lives. It's why people can sit through a sermon, and it could be a very powerful and direct sermon, and they can just go away and say, oh, that's fine, now let's just get on with it at Sunday lunch, and let's go on with my life, and it doesn't make any difference. But when God's word is preached in power, and it gets to your heart, you know, it sometimes it really upsets you. I, I don't actually genuinely, I genuinely do not like upsetting people, but I would hate to be in a church where nobody got upset. Because it would mean to me that God was not at work. Because neither I nor you are perfect people who when the Lord speaks to us we go, yeah, thank you, Lord, I was just waiting for that. 
we will, if you like, kick against the pricks. We will, we will, we will resist. We will fight. We like the idea of God convicting other people of their sin. We don't like it when it happens to us. And so we react. The spiritual knowledge that we get tickles our ears but does not change our lives or challenge our lifestyles. What really makes us distinctive is if we base our lives on the knowledge, insight, and discernment that comes from the Word of God. And the Word of God is always like a mirror which shines on us. Another way of of understanding this is that the Word was often used in terms of discernment for being able to discern what really matters. What does really count in a fellowship? A sense of what is vital. Augustine says this, the only thing that really unites men is a common desire for the same ends. I think that's why church has become disunited and why there is so much trouble because in reality, so many people have different aims. What's your aim? My aim is to be happy. My aim is to have this. My aim is to have this type of church or that. But what if we have to refocus our aims so that what does God want? And some will think that's incredibly arrogant to think that we can work out what God wants. And some others will stand up and say, I'll tell you what God wants, and it happens to be just what I want. And sometimes put it in terms of very fine-sounding spiritual language. But what God wants is told in his word. And for all of us in 2016, we will find that our will does not always correspond with the will of God. And we will be challenged, and we will be provoked, and we will be changed. It's the living word of God that goes right into our very inmost being. Love and discernment go together. To love is to have the motivation to help. Discernment enables us to see what the real need is. Love means we have compassion and discernment sees we, means we see the situation clearly and realistically. You could paraphrase this a little bit in this way. May your love increase and abound in right knowledge and perceptive power that you may apply the right tests and reach the right decisions in things which present moral differences. This insight, of course, comes from prayer. This is my prayer. This is my prayer. We pray and God gives us insight. And again, notice the difference. People think, if I pray, God is going to put a flashing light across my ceiling telling me what to do. No, he's not. What God is going to do is work in your heart through his word, and as you relate to his people, you will experience something actually far more supernatural than that. This discernment also leads to purity, whiter than white, pure, sincere, unsullied, found pure when examined by the sun's rays is the idea that's being put forward here. I think my glasses are clean. If we had the glorious sunshine that we normally have in Dundee, for those of you who are visitors, um, you've come on the one day in the year where we've got sky weather but, or Glasgow weather, but if we had the normal sunshine, we, we, the, the light, you wouldn't be able to see the screen, the light comes in and uh, the light will show you what's on the windows. It's like you, um, you know, good housewife or house husband, you clean your windows, really pleased, visitors come in, and then dash it, the sun comes out, and you look at your windows, and they're minging. But you've just cleaned them. How can that be? Because the sun shows up the faults. Well, what's being said here is that when God's word is applied in our lives, it deals with the faults in our lives so that we will be on the inside what we are on the outside. 
There's been some fuss about the United Kingdom government wanting to monitor phone calls. I don't want the government monitoring my phone calls. But in one sense, we should remember this. As Christians, we should not be ashamed of what we do in private any more than of what we do in public. And we should not be ashamed of what we think in the corners of our heart. And there you and I really struggle. Because I don't care if you're the most saintly saint in this congregation. There are moments in your life when there are dark thoughts that enter your mind or enter your heart. And if anyone saw them, that would be your career over. That would be, you'd think you couldn't belong in the church. But that's true of every one of us. Because there's a darkness within But God's word comes and deals with that. I love what um, Murdo, who was with us last week, used to say when you asked him, how how are you, Murdo? Oh, well. Sorry, I won't do the Lewis accent. Uh, Oh, well, I'm not. I'm not what I was. I'm not what I should be. But I'm thankful for what I am and for where the Lord is leading me. And that's a good attitude for a Christian to have. Do you know, um, love makes you sincere and transparent. You know, you used to get these sweets, that, or you still get them. You get these sweets that are, they're kind of soft on the outside, chewy on the outside, and hard on the inside. There are some people who are like that. They kind of, they're, they're soft on the outside. Oh, they're all full of compassion and love and joy and, and everything, and you see them. But when you really, really get to know them, there's a hardness and a coldness inside. And then there are other people who are like the sweets that you used to have when you measured sermons by the sweets that you sucked. Do you know the, the, the mints or whatever? But the ones, the ones I liked were the ones that were really rock hard and you sucked at them and then uh, you get to the point where it, the, it bursts in your mouth. There's a soft center right inside. And some people are like that. When you see them, you look at them and you go, oh my goodness, they're a grumpy so-and-so. And they kind of seem kind of mean and so on. But when you actually really get to know them, there's a warmth and a compassion right in their heart. Now, maybe we should be soft on the outside and soft on the inside. I don't know. But um, what I'm saying is you can often melt away the sentimental outside and you find a hard, self-centered individual. It's better, surely, to be at least the other way around. And he says we are to be blameless. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Isn't it interesting? Because we so often say, I'm going to sort them out. I'm going to fix them. I'm going to put them right. And actually, our standards should be much less. At one level, our standards should be, don't let me cause anyone to stumble. That's what our our concern should be. And of course, all of this is until the day of Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And then this love... A pure life leads to a pure life that's filled with the fruit of righteousness. Let me just say a little bit about that. The seed of love has now grown. It's aided by knowledge and insight. It's blossomed into discernment, purity, and blamelessness. Now it yields full fruit, a fruit that will stand the test on the day of judgment. Productive lives. Is this like God being a boss, demanding that we produce more? Well, yes and no. The no is, we are not people who can manufacture fruit. God is not interested primarily 
in the business of our lives. He's interested in who we are and the fruit that we produce. John 15, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it'll be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me. I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. That fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things... There is no law. That is the harvest that we look for. Now, I look for a harvest in this church. I want us to have the problems that we had last year. Where where do we put people? I want us to plant a church in Charleston. I want to see so many different things occurring and so on. But that's nothing, and it won't really happen, without the real spiritual fruit coming into our lives. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I plan many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I've had among the other Gentiles. Wouldn't it be lovely if in a year's time we're all still here and spared, we're able to look back and say, wow, look at the fruit. And you can see it. I mean, I'm, I'm so encouraged by people I've seen who've grown up in the congregation here, our own young people, or um, students who've come in and they're wet behind the ears spiritually, and then you meet them years later and you think, my, what happened to you? They've grown, they've developed fruit. And in old age, when others fade, I'm sorry, I'm quoting the 1650 version of the psalm, which I've memorized. They shall be fat and full of sap and be flourishing. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Weight Watchers, forget it. It's <laughs> in a spiritual sense. That's just simply saying, You don't become less productive as you get older spiritually. You become more productive. And that's why those of you who are older don't think, ah, it's just for the young people. No, no. You don't retire as a Christian. You have to become more fruitful as you get older. Your cutoff point is when you go to heaven. Until then, you're serving the Lord as well. It's a pure life. Paul prays that we would be filled, overflowing with this fruit of righteousness. And this, again, comes from God. Lawrence of Arabia talks about taking some Arab friends to Paris. Fascinated, not by the Arc de Triomphe or the Eiffel Tower. What they were fascinated by was the sinks in their hotels. Why? Because they came from a country which was incredibly dry. And Lawrence had to explain to them about the Alps and the rain and where the water came from. I think we live in a land and amongst a people where there is an enormous spiritual dryness. And what should fascinate them is not when they come into our buildings or see our organizations or hear our praise. But when they see that we are overflowing, overflowing with spiritual life and vitality. 
Without Christ, there's no real spiritual fruit. Lastly, and I'll finish with this briefly, a filled life brings glory and praise to God, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Sanctification, which is what we're talking about, being made holy, is not instant. It's progressive. It takes time. There are seven direct references to Jesus Christ in these first 11 verses of Philippians. Our obedience, our discipleship, our hard work are not insignificant or optional. They are what God uses, but it is God that causes the growth. And why? Not because we are brilliant, because the Father works ceaselessly for the glory of the Son. The Son is ceaselessly at work for the glory of the Father. In us, we fail, we neglect, we are inadequate, but God is at work. And God is at work to bring glory to his name. Glory is the brightness and splendor of God, the sum total of the divine perfection. One of my Puritans says this, every holy character is a testimony to the divine character and efficiency of the work of redemption. You glorify God, not by how loud you sing, though that does help, but you glorify God when you live as his saved and redeemed people. Our chief end is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Paul tells the Ephesians that we were chosen to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. A filled life brings glory and praise to God. Wouldn't it be beyond almost a dream, so wonderful, if people were poured in this door because they said, we've seen what these Christians are like. We've seen what they do. We glorify their father even though we don't know him because of what they do. We want to know about Jesus because of what they do, what they are. We want to know. And yet that's what the Bible says. Evangelism is as much about us growing in holiness as it is about us handing out leaflets or telling people. And it's a real challenge to us I leave you with these words from Flavel. I had to, I just, I've, I've been so taken with this. I think about this all the time. Um, he says this, cheer yourself, O my soul, with the heart strengthening bread of this divine meditation. Let faith turn every drop of this truth into a soul reviving cordial. God has sown the precious seed of grace upon my soul. And though my heart has been an unkindly soil which has kept it back and much hindered its growth, and who of us would not testify to that? Yet, blessed be the Lord, it still grows on, though by slow degrees. And from the springing of the seed and shooting forth of these gracious habits, I may conclude an approaching harvest. Now is my salvation nearer than when I first believed. Every day I come nearer to my salvation." Oh, that every day I were more active for the God of my salvation. Grow on my soul and add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge, and so on. Grow on from faith to faith. Keep yourself under the ripening influences of heavenly ordinances. May God grant that you and I would know an incredibly fruitful 2016. May the Lord bless his word.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.